There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. My guest this week on the Mike Wise Show is one of the greatest coaches ever to hold a clipboard. He is the only coach in basketball history to lead teams to an NCAA championship and an NBA championship. His impact on the game goes back 60 years, but he's still as fresh as ever. And he has so many great stories that we're doing part one now and part two next week. He's up next. But first, Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Thank you, Darlene. Larry Brown is simply one of the greatest coaches of all time. He was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2002. He led UCLA to the Final Four in 1980 and won it all with Kansas in 1988. Took the 76ers to the NBA Finals in 2001, losing to, boy, almost a Laker dynasty. But he led his Pistons team to the NBA championship in 2004. Still one of the, the greatest upsets, I think, in NBA Finals history beating a Lakers team that had four future Hall of Famers on it. And look, his Pistons team had zero Hall of Famers except for him. But these are just a handful of Coach Brown's accomplishments. Welcome, Larry. How are you? Good. I'm good. Thanks. I I understand you're, you're one of the busiest guys I know. It must kill you right now to be out of the game. Yeah, uh... But in some ways, I'm connected. I, you know, I get invited to a lot of colleges. You know, I have relationships with so many coaches that have helped me along my way. And so they allow me to come in and kind of consult. But I'm the one that always learns. Um, and it's good smell in the gym. I, I miss that. Uh, lately, I've been going to lacrosse and soccer and field hockey and <laughs> watching my grandkids play, and I found out the bleaches are really hard. <laughs> you, do you uh, – see, I'm a youth sports parent. I, I got married late, Larry, and I got a nine-year-old. I need to shut up, but I, sometimes I can't. Do you have the same problem? Yeah, I, I, I cheer a little bit, but, you know, being a college coach and being around the AAU circuit, I hear a lot of parents. So I try to be real careful. <laughs> um, one of the uh, one of the great things about uh, doing the podcast the last year is I've, ha- I've had so many great guests, and I can't tell you how many do unsolicited Larry Brown stories. And I, I just want to run one by you. Chris Mullen came on one day, and he goes, "You know, uh, I, this is crazy, but my son was playing one day in the park, and he said a guy came up and, and started showing all these kids how to play point guard, and he was like, yeah." It was it was it was you. Is this is this true? It might be. It might be. Uh, you know, Chris. Chris is out in the Hamptons in the summertime with his family, and kids came out, and I, I used to hang around. My son and a couple of his friends would play once in a while, and I'd get involved. You know, I um, I grew up wanting to be a teacher, um, coach baseball, basketball, and football, and. You know, and um, all of a sudden, I got into this high-level coaching. But I, you know, I used to read Chip Hilton books by Claire B. <laughs> yep. And they they had a famous coach named Rockwell, who, who coached every sport and then taught American history. And I thought, wow, that would be a an unbelievable opportunity for me. And um, but lo and behold, I I got into the pro level in college because of the people that impacted my life and uh i've always looked at myself as a teacher um and that's something i really miss mike because i don't think the game is being taught the same way that 
you know, so many young people learned years ago. Well, I think I think you're on to something because there's an um, there's an author out there right now, uh, David Epstein, who wrote a book essentially about. Um, well, he wrote a book called The Sports Gene, but his his most recent book is about is essentially about why kids shouldn't specialize. They need to play all the they, they need to play every sport. Like, like I, I guess you used to, and I, you know, I'm 56. I used to, and 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 the idea of this specialization, these travel teams, is, is almost hurting kids because they use the same muscles. Uh, it's almost like the overuse in some of these things because they play in so many tournaments. And you're right, there are not enough teachers left in the game, and that's I think that's what a lot of people miss. Yeah, I, you know, I. When I got into college recently, um, the AAUs were much more involved. And I heard horror stories about it. Um, But really, in some cases, I saw some unbelievable coaches and some parents that really knew how to act and knew the, the value of playing AAU ball. And then I saw the other extreme, which was really troubling to me because you know, I found out every kid that plays AAU basketball now thinks they're going in the NBA after one year in college. If they don't make it, they feel like they're a failure. And I agree with you. I, You know, I played all three sports in high school. Um, I got to be around people with different values. Um, I specialized myself by practicing on my own because – my mom worked in a bakery across from a playground, and when it was time to go home, she'd blink the lights, <laughs> and I'd come in. But I played, you know, basketball during the basketball season. I played baseball. You know, we even choose up sides. Everything wasn't organized, and <laughs> um, it was it was a great learning experience for me. And I, yep. you know, I find now, Mike. Yeah, that a lot of a lot of coaches are afraid to teach kids because how they might react. And I think the more kids know you care, the more they'll accept coaching. And if they accept coaching, the better opportunity for them later on to be successful. Yeah, you're you're so right. I remember talking to Pat Riley once, and he said something to the effect of, you know, the the biggest misconception about a lot of NBA players is they don't want discipline. They don't want someone pushing them to the next level. And he said, the reason being is a lot of these guys are so wealthy now that they're, they're really CEOs of their own companies and their families work for them. And and so they have all these people around them to tell them what they want to hear instead of they need to hear. And they need that one person in life to push back and, and get the most out of them because that person's gone based on just their economic status. Yeah, I I see that a lot. Um, one of the things that I see going around college now is a coach when he's, you know, working with the kid and around him, it's like a classroom in a lot of cases. Um, I remember Coach Smith, he – He'd ask you a question, and if you'd answer, he'd say, no, listen. If I wanted you to answer, I'd tell, ask you the question twice. But um, basically, you know, when I went home, I didn't have Internet or somebody calling me up and saying, you know, coach isn't using you right. He's not treating you right. Um, and these kids are faced with that. And a lot of young kids now, they – they're, I guess, supposed to raise money, you know, contribute to their family after they're done playing. And that's unbelievable pressure. My family, my mom worked to try to make my brother's life and my life better. Um, a lot of these kids are put in this situation where the family's expecting them to do well and someday help them live their life. And that's that's really a lot of pressure. Um, and when you get back to what Riley said, you know, I, you know, I've moved around a lot. Everybody always mentions that right away. Um, I only went to one winning team. Um, 
you know, I went to the Pistons and, you know, they lost four straight to New Jersey and Rick unfortunately got fired. But, it, you know, I, I inherited a team with really good values. Um, but all the other teams, all the other teams I went to, after about two days, they know whether you can coach or not. And that's kind of important. And then then they want to know, um, can we win with this guy? And they can figure that out pretty quickly. And that's kind of important. And then the third thing, which I think has gotten really important now, is if he can he make me better? If he makes me better, then I have a chance to make more money down the road. But the thing that I always felt trumped everything is if they knew you cared about them, and they trusted you, then they would do almost anything for you. And that was the beauty for me of being a coach and being around other players and other coaches as well. And that was the way I was brought up. You know, when a high school coach was great, I played for Dean Smith, Frank McGuire. I played with John McClendon, Mr. Iba, Pete Newell, Alex Hannum. I mean, they all shared their knowledge with me and treated all the players that they coached with unbelievable respect, but were demanding and honest. And I think that's something that all these young kids need. Mm. Um, I'm with Larry Brown, the legend, uh, one of my favorite people, not just uh, basketball people, but person who's always been transparent and real, whatever the situation. I, I would just, I'm always amazed, Larry, and I know you, you, you say you're a teacher and you've gotten used to this life of, um, uh, I, I guess what I would call more, um, you're still a regular guy in many ways, but I look at your coaching tree. I mean, you just mentioned Frank McGuire, Dean Smith, Alex Hannum, Henry Iba, John McClendon. You, you, I mean, you could literally in four moves, draw a um, six degrees of Larry Brown back to James Naismith. Do you realize that? Oh, no, I do because, uh, well, one, I got to coach at Kansas. And right. Coach Smith played there. And John McClendon was one of the first black students there who learned under Mr. Naismith. And if I'm not, um, if I'm not wrong, if I'm, if I'm uh, correct, he was one of the sort of the fathers of the running game, wasn't John McClendon? Yeah, and I'll tell you, he was the one that invented four corners. But uh, if you look at, you know, the historical black colleges and the great, great coaches that came from there that weren't allowed to play in the NIAA, NIAA till <laughs> Coach McClendon got, you know, I think Tennessee State in, um, his tree is just remarkable. Um and he continued to contribute to the game, I think, until his, until his 90s. And, you know, I played for him on the Olympic team with Mr. Iba. I went on a tour with him. He actually offered me my first coaching job um, to come to Kentucky State with him. And I said, Coach, you can't bring a young white kid who's Jewish <laughs> to Frankfurt, Kentucky. I mean, that's going to be a little, a little culture shock. But... Uh, he was a big part of my life, and I do think, you know, well, think about this. I played AAU ball when the AAU tournament was right next to a, the NCAA tournament, um, and they had an industrial league. I played for Goodyear. I played in the ABA. I got to coach in the NBA. I, I got to coach at the University of North Carolina under Coach Smith. I got to coach at UCLA. I got to coach at Kansas. I went back later on in life at SMU. So they're all historical programs in their own way. Um, and it just happened. And then the people that have sat next to me, the greatest gift that I was given was an opportunity to become a head coach. Um, and it, it seemed like everybody that sat next to me and helped me become better became a head coach or became mm. a GM or have done something in basketball. And that's, that's really what's fun. Um, yeah. When you're able to, you know, go around and watch people that have a big part in your life do well, it was a pretty incredible feeling. 
I, I could do the in my day with Larry Brown all day. One of my favorite interviews with him was in Hawaii in 2000. Uh, he was an assistant coach on the U.S. Olympic team. And and you told me it was it was great. It was sort of the uh, the contrast between you playing in an Olympic team in Ho- on Hawaii in 1964 and the guys in 2000. And uh, and your quote was, it wasn't like we got bags, jackets, shirts, and shoes like this group. In 64, they hit us with a lay, put us on a military bus, and drove us to Pearl Harbor. We stayed in the enlisted men's quarters, which was one big room. We ate in the military mess hall. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, like what what Olympic basketball has even become now? It's just, it's incredible. Well, you know, when I was there, we actually practiced 30, 30 days, and you know, a lot of guys never saw the ocean uh, before. And we thought we were going to go and have a good time. And then, you know, in 2000, um, the whole Olympic movement was different. We only had limited days of practice. Um, they selected the team. They didn't try out for the team. And when I coached in 2004 um, and we lost, the team that we had together in 2003 was phenomenal. Mm. Um, we killed Argentina that won the gold, but all of a sudden 9-11 started and we had to pick a team just at random and I didn't do a real good job. We didn't have a, a lot of time to practice, but since then, you know, they've started with young kids. Jerry Quangelo has done an unbelievable job, um, you know, of building the team and putting a really, truly good team together. It has great chem- chemistry, and it's helped the game real- worldwide. You know, the Dream Team did wonders. Um, but since then, because of the way Jerry Coangelo has constructed this team, where they actually practice and play together and get to know one another, it's it's really been an unbelievable transition in my mind. Mm. Um, one of the, I was going to ask you a a Jewish kid from New York, going to North Carolina, a little bit of a culture shock. Uh, it, there was a couple weeks ago, we did a show with Tamir Goodman, who was known as the Jewish Jordan at one time. And he's great. He's over there in Israel. And, and we discussed how basketball is a sport where, where Jews and African-Americans have traditionally enjoyed great success together. Uh, You saw a lot of that in New York. It bugs the hell out of me when I see something like what happened in uh, during Hanukkah, um, and and I just think that basketball was one of the things that brought people together, and especially uh, people of color and Jewish people. Yeah, well, it was it was a city game, um, and you know a lot of people that migrated, you know, came over from Russia and Eastern Europe. Uh, because of various reasons, that was the sport they played. Um, all you needed was a ball. And uh, that's how I learned to play. I played on the playground, and Red Holtzman used to play against me when I was a young kid. Um, and I can't tell you all the great players that I got to play against. Um, and, you know, you know, I see what's going on in the world today where there's so much division and I always look at it, a team. Uh, if you're involved in basketball, they don't care, you know, what color you are, what religion you are, what creed, anything. They just care if you're a decent person and if you can play. And I, th- I wish the world would understand that. You know, mm. that's that's all that really matters. If you're productive in some way, and you're a good person. You know, a lot of a lot of real good things can be accomplished. Larry Brown is the guest, uh, full of stories and thoughts. Um, you're 79, but you always feel. Whenever I see you, you always feel like a. Well, if you were 69, you'd be a young 69. I feel like you're a young 79. Do you have anything left where you? Not that you'd take a full time job, but but maybe you could jump on as a consultant with somebody full time, or or really be around a team enough where you you get to work with some kids well i want to do that and i've been trying to do that but um i haven't been real successful um, wait, wait wait hold on you've been trying to do that like you've been making calls and and, and people have been shutting you down oh yeah 
Oh yeah, it's, uh, that, that makes no well, sense. I don't know. I you know I look back on the NBA. Um, you know Phil Jackson was a phenomenal coach. He had Tex Winter and Johnny Bach. Uh, I look at Rick Rick Edelman and you know he had Pete. You know Kurt, um yep. I'm having a senior moment, but <laughs> Pete Carell, Pete Carell with him and yeah, and I you know. If you look, I, I'm close to Andy Reid because he was in Philly when I was there. Mm. He he hadn't gotten dumber as he's gotten older. Um, I I just can't imagine. To me, I see these young kids leaving college early, and they go into the NBA, and now the NBA has like 15 workout coaches or developmental yeah. coaches, <laughs> um, and. I don't blame a kid for leaving early if he can help his family, but I don't see any problem in a kid staying in school and, you know, working on his craft, having a chance to get an education, being around people from different areas, the different, you know, interests. And when they get to the NBA, they're ready to handle all the things that come at them, come at them. And, if you see you see so many of these young kids now that after two or three years, lottery picks they're gone, and a lot of people say they failed. Uh, well, we made a bad pick. No, the system failed. Yeah, they didn't. Because, you're right. They didn't develop them. Yeah, we're we're, you know, I, I look at Saint. You know, I, I don't say many nice things about Duke, but I look at Battier. <laughs> you know, he stayed for, he stayed four years at Duke. Yep. Miami Miami drafted him, and he had a hell of a career. He was a tremendous player, a tremendous citizen. Um, but now they look at a 22-year-old like he's over the hill. Um, and they you don't see the seniors getting drafted like the 19- or 20-year-old kids because they don't think the seniors have the growth. And I, I just can't imagine that. Um, yeah. And no, I'm, my, I'm, my, go ahead. I'm cut you off. Sorry. I've been around. I've been around teachers. You know, when I go, I've been lucky because so many of the players that have played for me are coaching me, are now coaching, and they really coach and teach these kids. Mm. Um, and the longer they stay, the better prepared they are to play in the NBA. Um, and I, you know. Uh, I had a kid named Emmanuel Moutier that signed with us to go to SMU and, you know, his family really struggled. So he ended up going to China and I told him, and I told his mom, if he stayed with us, even a year, he'd be the first or second pick in the draft. He went to China, got hurt. He got picked seventh. He's now on his, uh, I think third team yep. um, in Utah. And thank God he's there. Cause you know, I think Conley and Quinn and that culture will really help him if he can stay healthy. But there's no downside for kids that stay. And when they do get to the NBA, realize, you know, it's not that easy. They're going to play against the very best every single night. Um, and in order to be successful in doing that, you got to have some kind of background to fall back on. And and teaching and, you know, getting taught by a college coach that cares about you. Not that all – I know all the NBA coaches care about their players, but it doesn't seem like they have the time. Practice is shorter now. Mm-hmm. They rest players now. We used to have two-a-days for six weeks. Um, <laughs> now, you know, they're a lot different. They call it load management. Uh, it, 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 it just sounds like a dietary problem to me. It doesn't even sound like a, uh, a resting can you, thing. Can yeah. you imagine me telling Alan Iverson that, <laughs> you know, I, he got to sit out tonight. Um, he, I, you know, a lot of people have been on me to write a book, Mike. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I'd love to write a book about the wonderful things that I see happening in our game. But I, you know, I, I don't know exactly how to go about that. But I know the title. I I coached Allen 600 games, I think, 
I took him out twice a game. I took him out the end of the first quarter so he'd get a long rest because the, after the quarter. Then I took him out late in the third quarter and put him back in the fourth. And the first time I took him out in a regular game, he came by and used a couple of choice words like an MF to me or something like that. And the first few times I I wanted to get angry and my coaches pulled me back and said, no, that's just Alan. But I know the title would be, I'd be an MF 1200 times. Um, <laughs> I'd be a motherfucker. But, you know, it's great. It's a podcast. But, we can swear. Um, no, that's but, just great. Go ahead, coach. I'm sorry. But it's just his, you know, his competitiveness and his, he wanted to be out there um, every second of every game. And I think that's what made him so special. You'll, you'll like this story. When um, when when it, it was disappointing for a lot of the players uh, in Greece, but a lot of uh, some guys were just they were just really happy for the experience. And and Alan was one and he he had the most. Shoot, I would call it the, the the most. Uh, you know, Alan could give his heart out to anybody, but he he really he stayed a long time after the last game, and you guys won bronze, and he spoke to us for a good hour, and um and and he was so thoughtful, and he really he really liked it. In fact, that he even got a medal at the end of it. Nobody really knew what to say, and he was almost crying, and I, he walked away. And I didn't. I wanted to break the break the ice, and I just go, uh, Alan, can I just ask you one thing? And he goes, Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, and he goes. We talk about practice, practice. <laughs> he <laughs> fell over laughing. Uh, I still look at that. That's like a classic moment in NBA history. And it's sort of, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, it embodies not only his competitiveness and, and his, his sometimes his inability to be coached, even though it's the best thing for him. But I, I, I still look at that. I don't know. I don't know if you do, but I think it's funny in hindsight. Well, I get calls every anniversary of that conversation. Um, and, you know, when when I coached at SMU, I brought Alan to speak to our team a few times. I, I wish the NBA would bring him around and speak to everybody. Because, oh, I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah, he He's so open and honest. But, you know, people don't realize about that Greece team. Um, in 99, we won the qualifying, and we had to beat – Argentina actually in the semifinals of the qualifying of the America's Cup, or we wouldn't have even gone to the Olympics. And we actually had 10 or 11 days of practice. And Coach Popovich worked out the schedule. And then for 2000, instead of having the nine or 10 days of practice, we had limited practice, but we decided to play games, um, you know, on the way. And it really didn't give us a lot of time to prepare because we had a completely different team. And a lot of people don't realize the sacrifices those guys made to go there. Oh yeah. Um, because of all the turmoil, we, we actually had gunboats uh, around where we were staying on the Queen Mary too. Now, I remember this. People... I remember there, there was, there was, there was graffiti all over Athens that said, you know, basically us leave, get out of like, it was, there, there, there was some anti-American sentiment at the time. Yeah, and I remember we were in Istanbul and a hotel blew up right near where we were staying. Oh, that's right. I remember that. Uh, and and so it was it was so unfair. And then people don't really realize after 2004, we actually came after having 90 practices. That another team in 2006 came in third in the World Championships. So nobody talks about that. Mm, I, I remember I, that. That was at uh, that was in Indianapolis with uh, I think P uh, Paul Pierce was on that team. And that was I don't know if it was in Indianapolis, but it was you know Coach Krzyzewski's first opportunity, oh, right. and then you know and Guangzhou realized you know that this is serious. Basketball all over all over the world has changed. And we got to have a better way of picking the team and preparing the team. And they've done an amazing job since then. And, you know, we almost lost in Beijing where NBA is the biggest thing going. And if it wasn't for Kobe at the end of the game, you know, who knows what might have happened. 
Uh, oh yeah, oh Kobe and Dwayne Wade bailed bailed us out. I thought in that right. they had some big moments down the stretch uh, against Spain, where I was thinking, oh, we're in trouble. We are in yeah, trouble. Yeah, I mean, well, so that that's the greatest thing when you look at the NBA now and you see the contributions these kids have made coming from all over the world and the impact they're having on our sport. And it's yeah. it's fun. I got to ask you something, Mike. Yeah. Where were where were you when you heard about Kobe? Oh yeah, I was. You know, Larry, I was in my kitchen, and uh, you know, I, I said, "I'm an old dad. I, I have a, a daughter turned two that day, and we were unwrapping her Baskin Robbins cake, and I got a little text from the office from a, a young digital reporter, and she says, "Hey, your Kobe died," and I'm I'm like, "You're joking." And I started looking at the internet and I said, oh my God. And so, yeah, I was sitting here in my kitchen with my daughter, about to about to have my daughter's second birthday party. And it just, it threw me for something like I'd never been thrown before. And not because I was super close to him, even though I wrote Shaq's autobiography and I got to know Kobe and we had, we had some one-on-one time over the years. I wasn't close to him, but it just such a, such a talent such an impact, such a, such an inspiring presence. Where were you coach? No, I was, I was here and, you know, a little after 10, I got, I got a similar message from somebody. And then right away, my phone started blowing up because, um, you know, Mark Turgeon coaches Maryland. He played yep. for me and coached with me. Um, I love Turge. Yeah, I got a call from him right at, you know, I called him after they beat Indiana in the last second on the road. Yeah. And uh, I was so happy for him. And he, he said, Coach, you can't believe my kids are just crushed. They didn't even think about winning the game. Mm. And I, I started to realize, you know, one, he's taking his daughter to an AAU basketball game. Tells you a little bit about him. Mm-hmm. Two, he was doing so much after basketball which would help so many of these young players that are doing so well realize there is life after basketball and you can make a contribution. And, you know, cause I see LeBron, what he's done in building a school. I was in Akron. You see what Dwayne Wade's doing. David Robinson built a school, Jalen Rose. But the first thing that hit me after that was I turned on the TV and I heard Jalen Rose, and I heard what he said, and it, it blew me away, just the feelings he was showing for Kobe. And then I heard a lot of the younger players because, mm-hmm. you know, some of us grew up admiring Bob Cousy, Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Oscar, Jerry West. Then it was Michael, you know, uh, of course it was Magic and Larry. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was Alan. And but the young kids now, it's Kobe. Yeah, and it's it, funny it, how you say that, Larry, because because exactly like where I I guess I was a Magic Bird kid, and and then I got out of college and sort of got covering the league, and then I became like, wow, Michael's everything to everybody, and then Kobe became Michael to the to the next generation, and it was and it's amazing how many how many people are just uh, it it's. It, I, I know he wasn't a humanitarian, like say, for instance, uh, Princess Diana. But I almost feel like that's the outpouring of love and and shock and and sadness. Where where this guy is just you realize not only the NBA has become an international sport, but Kobe was an international figure. And you and then there's just this this mourning that's less it's it's national, it's global. I, I've never seen anything like it, and I um and uh, I, I'm. I'm still shaken up about it, really, because it just it doesn't seem like it happened. Yeah, um, I'm the same way. Uh, you know, I remember when John Lennon was killed. Mm. I remember I, I was going to the Duke, North Carolina game when President Kennedy was shot. Um, I was in Akron driving. Um, and then you mentioned Princess Diana. This this thing with Kobe is it's it's very similar. Uh and yeah, I, I have a, I've known Kobe for quite a while, you know, being a Philly guy. Uh, yeah. Did you ever have remember, a moment or do you remember what's your greatest memory person, a personal moment with him that, that people would really uh, like to hear? Well, when he couldn't play on the Olympic team because of that little incident he had. Oh, in, 
Oh, yeah, oh, shoot. I had to cover that for the New York Times. It was it was painful in a way. Yeah, he called me and, you know, told me how sorry he was he wasn't going to be able to play and how much representing the country meant to him and how important it was. Uh, and shortly after that, Carl Malone lost his mom and he, he couldn't play in the last minute. But, you know, hearing Kobe and the way he felt uh, about representing the country, uh, playing on the Olympic team. That was that was pretty impactful for me. But I, I, when he was at Lower Marion High School, I was coaching Indiana. We had the 10th pick. John Calipari was at the Nets. He had the 8th pick. And we would talk about the draft. And um, I sent Court, Courtney Whitney went to see Kobe play. He was working for us at Indiana with Donnie Walsh. And he, he loved him, thought he was great. Um, and Tony DeLeo, who I have great respect for, felt the same way. And then we sent somebody else, I won't tell you. And he came back and didn't think he was ready and this and that. And So we ended up, we didn't take Kobe at 10. But John told me he was going to take him at 8. And he thought, what do I think? I said, well, I think we should take him, John. But you know, yeah, you guys said Damp, Damp, right? Eric Dampier. Yeah, we took Eric Dampier. So John had ownership, had a bunch of owners, and he finally got them to agree that if Kerry Kittles wasn't there at eight, he could take Kobe. And oh. the more the moral of the story is, I'd probably still be at Indiana, and he'd start, probably still be at <laughs> the Nets. <laughs> we oh, drafted right. Kobe. Yeah. Oh, we talk about the fork in the road in a career. Well, you, you know, it's funny yeah. where you say that because um, at the time, um, uh, oh, it's, it's another story completely. But but I, I look at that draft and the guys who like Lorenzen Wright went seven, um, and then Kerry yeah. Kittles went eight, Samaki Walker, and uh, I, I don't know Jerry Jerry West. Boy, you talk about a a savant. Yeah. He just saw something yeah. and he knew. So Stajakovic won fourteen. Um, That's right. In that draft, pretty darn good player. There were that was a terrific draft. But I, you know, yeah. I'm a. I'll give you another Kobe story. You, you know, AAU basketball. They used to have a camp called ABCD camp. They used to invite the top hundred kids, Nike, and um, I remember. Was, I was, that there. An, was that in Hackensack? Um, usually at Princeton. Um, oh, oh yeah. You know what? I'm thinking of after you stopped running it, I'm thinking of where, where they took it. Yeah. Different places. But, um, these kids were offered an opportunity to watch Kobe work out in the summer at that camp. And naturally, you know, everybody wanted to see Kobe work out. So they told everybody to be ready at 5:45, and, you know, the kids were real excited, but, but they didn't realize it was 5.45 in the morning. Um, and that was just his work ethic. It was, that was what he did. You know, he, he worked out twice a day in the summer, early in the morning and late in the afternoon. And he did it religiously. Yeah. And even though he was gifted and a competitor, it was his worth ethic, I think, that separated him. Uh, same thing with Michael. Oh, I agree. Um, you don't you don't become you know god gives you talent but character is a choice yes um no kobe worked these, kobe was gift you're right he had he had god-given gifts but he maximized them in ways that i can't even i don't even think i've I met three players in my life that made themselves the best they could possibly be with their size because i remember seeing kobe coach early on and Frank Isol and I uh, were interviewing him up close, and one of those things where you kind of you're looking at somebody and you're and you're realizing, wait a minute, Kobe's hands aren't that big compared to Michael's, and and we thought that's going to hurt him. I mean, he can't. How's he going to hold the ball when he goes to the rim? And sure, it didn't matter. Kobe found ways and angles and trajectories. He and 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 the more and as like a lot of players do when they when they lose some of their athleticism, he just. He, he learned, he learned angles. He learned an economy of movement where he knew where he was under the hoop. And, and it was just, it was so, it was so beautiful to watch him grow as a player. Well, 
you know, he was around some quality people. You know, Jerry's belief in him was was something. I, you know, that to see Jerry's reaction after this terrible news was something that really oh. put a hole in my heart. But uh, but it's 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 a lesson for everybody, uh, mm. Mike, because you know, being lucky is one thing, but the harder you work, the luckier you get. Mm. Um, and and kids have to know that. And they they also have to know about working on the right things. Um, and that's what I miss most because yeah. I go I go watch so many practices. Um, I go out before an NBA game and I watch kids working out. And I'm really in some cases wondering how does that apply to our game, things that they're doing. Um, it's, so, uh, it's, so uh, real quick, Larry, if I cut you off for a sec, I, I want to go back to this for a minute. I, I, it bothered me when I heard that, that you've, you've reached out to teams, like, give me one or two teams that you've reached out. You don't have to give me the person. I'm just wondering like why they don't have use for Larry Brown. You're the kind of person where you wouldn't even want a million dollars from him. You just want to go work with kids. I just want to smell the group the gym uh i never worked a day in my life mike to be honest <laughs> i love that you know i i mean and it's true how many how many people grow up i wanted to be a high school coach coach every sport and you know i i fortunately got to coach on the highest level but it was because of the relationships and the people that impacted my life my brother started me when i was young you know people in the neighborhood you know help me but i just want to share what i was taught and uh i've i can't tell you how many teams that i've tried or people have tried on my behalf like so the knicks did you reach out to the knicks well i it didn't end very well with me with the knicks unfortunately yeah, um, yeah that's true and i i know those you know you know what new york basketball means oh, and, oh yeah oh but i you, you know if I could do anything in my life, and I'm not even from New York, I'm from Northern California, but having worked in New York for 10 years and the passion and the love for that team and the way that they still talk about Dollar Bill and Willis and that, that they just want a championship so bad. And, and you know, and well, look, we all, we could go into well, they, that for days, but there's a common denominator. You know, everybody, you know what I call the Knicks, Larry? It's the reverse car wash. You go in clean and you leave dirty. Well, uh, I uh, shame on me because you know a lot of people say things about Mr. Dolan. My my problem was I didn't have a have a relationship with him. I went chain mm. of command. Um, but he would do you know people get it wrong. He would do anything and give you anything you could to have the resources to be successful. I really believe that. I just I don't think that the Knicks have a culture where everybody is allowed to do their job, you know, and that's so it's, it's not a single effort. It's collaborative effort. You don't think it's toxic top-down management from James Dolan. You think that it's just a, a, a culture that's, that, that, that doesn't empower people enough or something. I, I think the great teams, um, People are hired to do a job and they get every resource to help do their job. Everybody is on the same page with the same goals. And it's not about who gets credit. It's about the success of the team. You look at Riley, um, the way he runs it. He, Eric Spolster started as an intern and he's one of the great coaches in our league. He just grew up learning from Pat and learning from mm -hmm. the people that sat next to him and, um, and look at the deal that they just made. I oh. mean, and have all this cap room and people want to play there because, you know, Pat, Pat demands the best from you. Yep. Um, and the people that go there grow not only as players, they grow as human beings. And I remember, you know, in the 2000 team, I fell in love with Alonzo and, and you can, I guess you could see he was struggling then. I, you know, I didn't realize he had an illness, 
but I realized he was struggling physically. And I remember he flew back from Australia to be with his wife for the birth of their son, I think. And then he, then he flew back to Australia. But to hear, you know, the players talk about the culture of Miami, there's a reason they win. There's a culture in San Antonio. There's a reason they win. Um, you look all over sports, the teams that are successful, people are hired to do their job. Ownership is part of it. Um, coaching is part of it. The players are part of it. But they they never let anybody get in the way and interfere with their common goal. And that's that's the thing I think it has been a problem. And if what's true, if, if Leon goes there, um, I think that's a real step in the right direction. I've known Leon for a long time. He's a quality, quality human being. It seems um, like the new trend almost. Uh, if you think about Rob Palinka, uh, Leon Rose, um, I'm trying to think well, of who, who else. Well, you got you got the guy in Golden State. Done oh, yeah, Bob job. Watson. Yeah, Bob, but yeah, I – Bob Meyer. You know, yeah, I don't I don't know if it's only um you know agents, but I know it's people that, you know, have an idea how to do things the right way. Um and are exposed to ownership, exposed to GMs, exposed to how people operate. Um and that's that's really, really important. People skills are everything on the NBA level. You know, I look, I look back on my my career. There's some people I feel terrible about maybe the way I coached them. Who? who um, not many. Uh, I don't want to say that. But well, I mean, if not a, I'm not a guy. You know, not a guy in particular. But maybe like a, I don't know, a, a, a player or somebody that that you that if you had a bit if you had a regret, what would it be? Well, my I have two big regrets. Um, you know, Alan, uh, hmm. you know, I, he now talks about me and, you know, we're so close um, mm-hmm. and I've grown so much since I've been around him, but, you know, I, I heard his comment, at, you know, after Kobe passed away, he said when, when Kobe was getting up at six in the morning to work out, I was coming home from a club. Yeah. I uh, saw that. And, you know, and, and, and you look at it, um, Alan had an unbelievable career, and he he's probably as admired as much as any player that's ever played in the league because of his competitiveness and courage and stuff. But I wish I could have done a lot more um, for him during the time I spent with him. And then then I look at David Thompson, um, uh, who a lot of pe- a lot of people don't a lot of people don't remember. He was Michael before Michael. Yeah. I mean, the game he had yeah. in NC State, and the I, I just look at, I just look at some of the things he did, and even in, in college, yeah. I and mean, when he came out, and he had some games. You're right. He was, well, he, he was a he Skywalker. Was yeah, he was just 20 when he came out. He got, yeah, he scored 73 in a game I coached, and was 20, I think he was 21 for 22 at halftime, and was he missed a dunk. And that was the the year that he lost the scoring title to George Gervin in the last game. Um, David got 73. I think George got 63 to win the title. But David took half the shots Gervin took. And Doug Moe thought I was trying to, you know, get David to score so many that he told Gervin to shoot every time he got it. And David was mad at me for trying to tell our team to feed him. And I wasn't. You know, he was just so spectacular that night. But, you know, that was during the drug culture when a lot of us that were coaching didn't realize what was going on with our players. Uh, And what is your regret with David that you didn't see that you didn't see some of that? I didn't I didn't realize what was going on. You know, I didn't I had no idea. I was a young coach. I was focused on coaching our team and you know you you love to establish relationships with players but I didn't realize what David was going through um yeah and the the uh and it, he was truly an unbelievable person and and I, 
I, I tell kids about him, and they don't even realize who the heck this kid is. He never lost to Carolina. He well, not only, yeah, yeah, not only that, I mean, six foot four, he had a 44 inch vertical. I mean, that's, 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 that's almost in, un, inhuman. It's incredible. And he could, he could make shots. He was unselfish. Uh, he was all package, but you know, there's, there's some stories so what about I, guys so, that I, go ahead, I know I, I could have done a better job and, and you look back on it and you hope that, you know, in your heart, you were trying to do the right thing. Yeah. He, um, he, I mean, I guess the owner at the time is the one who found out about his drug addiction. You just never saw it. I mean, you just, you, you well, never saw it. That came after I left. Um, okay. No, I never, I never saw it. Um, yeah. And I don't know what I could have done about it because it was so different than, um, yeah. You know, in the 70s, uh, you know, you could hear stories and people, it would blow people's minds to hear things that were going on. But but at the end of the day, you know, what a talent. Um, You know, he's got a ministry in Charlotte. Um, Oh, he does now? Yeah. Do you get to to see him? Yeah. Well, last time I I went to call Shear's funeral and got to see David. Looked great. Um, it was yeah. sad. You know, Carl was pretty spectacular about what he did. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thanks to our guest, uh, the great Hall of Fame coach, Larry Brown, for sharing his insight on Kobe Bryant, Allen Iverson, and so much more. Next week, we'll present part two of our conversation with Larry. Tons more AI. Thanks to my producer, Bruce Bernstein, for all his hard work and moral, or is it immoral, support. Ben Wolfen edits the show, and we always appreciate his contributions. Please check out our other Pure Hoops media shows. Every Wednesday, we have Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Aaron Berlin and Otto Strong. Their guest this coming Wednesday is ESPN front office insider Bobby Marks, who will make sense of all the transactions at the trade deadline and size up the buyout market. Each Thursday, Monica McNutt drops by with buckets, boards, and blocks. Her guest this past week was Mark Spears of ESPN, who shares his thoughts on Kobe and Zion Williamson, as well as Trey Young. Every Friday, it's the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman, and I'm back each Monday. Please check out all of our shows. Download them, rate and review them, but most of all, enjoy. I'll see you next week on The Mike Wise Show. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.